0: We have a wealth of lived experiences with housing and housing insecurity, and actually, who better to inform policy and to collaborate on effective solutions for homelessness and for housing insecurity than the folks who have experienced it.
1: is Latinx Leaders in the Yimby Movement with Noelia Corzo and Irving Torres. I'm Alex i and like our guests I wear many hats but one of them that I wear the most is being Yimby Action's organizing manager for the Peninsula in the South Bay located in the Bay Area of California. It's important to note because we have a lot of Yimby Action chapters that are in different places. They're in Cal- They're in Florida, we're a national organization, we have chapters in a variety of states, and I want to make sure we know where we're at. And if you are not already a member of YMB Action, you can join us today. So uh, welcome. Please introduce yourselves.
2: Thank you so much, Alex, for having me as well as UMB Action. Good evening, everyone. My name is Irving Torres, and I currently serve as the director of All Home. Thanks for having me.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Noelia Corso. I am a board trustee for the San Mateo Foster City School District, a lifelong renter, um, daughter of immigrants. I grew up in the city of San Mateo, and I am a candidate, a YIMBY-endorsed Peninsula for Everyone-endorsed candidate for San Mateo County Supervisor District 2.
1: Awesome. (laughs) We do like our YIMBY-endorsed candidates. Thanks for being here. I think one of my favorite parts of being part of YMB and part of YMB Action is that we're just filled with a lot of stories and personal backgrounds. And this is really how a lot of us come to housing in the first place. So I guess the first question I want to ask you both before we dive into your work, before we dive into your professional experiences, is your personal experience. We know that personal experience is lived experience. So if you're willing to share a bit about your personal housing story and experiences, especially being from the Latino community, I would love to hear it, a personal story, a family event, or even a personal struggle if you're comfortable with. Irving, would you like to go first?
2: Sure, I can begin. Yeah, I think this issue more this topic about housing, especially for myself, it really resonates as a first generation son of immigrants that has grown up in the Bay Area Born in San Francisco, but primarily a lifelong resident of San Mateo County. You know, my experiences has been dealing with housing insecurity. Moving from place to place was kind of like the norm for my family and I. Due to a lot of issues that my parents had to deal with, from a sudden health issue to an unfortunate accident, which drove my family and I into poverty as well extremely low income. And so I think housing has been, housing insecurity has been something that I have come to know, live through, and something that is constantly reminded for me as I kind of do the work that I'm currently doing at all home. I appreciate you sharing
1: that. It's not always easy sharing these kind of like personal stories. Noelia, would you like to go next?
0: Sure. So I will kind of, I mean, there's a lot, Right, being lifelong renters, there's like for many people, especially people of color, low income folks, there's a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong, especially when you don't have the financial resources and especially when you come from an immigrant community, right? From an immigrant family. I will say, I guess I'll start off with saying that I know what it's like to live in a garage as a child, right? My family has gone through hard times, and luckily everything turned out fine and we're all good. But I think it's very symbolic of the vulnerability of of a lot of renters in our community. So that's a really significant experience in terms of housing. And I will say that it's not something that I ever talked about, probably until like two or three months ago during this campaign, where it just felt more and more relevant to to share that So that folks who maybe are currently experiencing something like that know that it doesn't define you. It won't define you. And it's actually our community's responsibility to provide that helping hand so that people can get out of those situations. So, yeah, that's one. There's others that are more relevant, more current, but I'll stop there.
1: No, that's pretty good. I mean, like, we all have similar shared experiences. There was a actually an article uh, in the LA uh, Los Angeles Times that really caught my eye on this particular unique issue when it comes to housing for Latinos in California. One of the big things is overcrowding is not necessarily an issue that is tied to one community. But I do think at least through my own personal lived experience know that it's something that's very relevant to the housing situation with Uh, Latinos I know like a lot of us tend to want to keep our families together we we're a culture of you know intergeneration where we have multiple generations in one household at the same time and we really do like rely on each other when times are tough I one of my personal experiences in this myself has been uh, my uncle who lives in a two-bedroom apartment, but has always kind of been the safe haven for family members when they've been falling on housing insecurity. It stuck me as kind of stark, and I'm diving into my own pers- one of my own personal stories here, in that in 2019, he received an eviction notice that was dated for December 31st, a day before the state's rent stabilization went into effect. And it just really struck me as something that was an unfair housing situation to a family member of mine that has always been leaned on for housing stability. And that's some of the unique challenges I feel like we face as a community. I'm not sure if one of our speakers wants to chime in if they've also known overcrowding. <laughs> we all We like to keep our families together. Irving?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I think as I mentioned before about growing up in extremely low income, the the realities is that for my parents who couldn't afford the rent that we were living in, they had the no choice but to kind of reach out and see if there was other family members that can also live at the household that we were renting out of. And it was a situation for myself as like a, a teenager that was fairly new, that was something of a new kind of living situation that really for me was something to call into question, but also thinking about like, do other families also deal with these types of situations? And so, and it was kind of this recurring theme of other folks, people coming in and out of the household and so forth. And at times I would even like, kind of think about like my own personal safety issue as well as like, can this, stranger that we're kind of renting the same space, can that be trusted as well? But the reality is, is if we didn't have this opportunity to rent the room, my family and I, we probably would not have a place to live during that time.
1: I mean, those are the kind of personal stories that really like tie us into our work. I think it's a good segue to actually roll into our next question is, In both of your cases, like what made you both decide to start advocating for housing? There's a tie of the personal story there, but we all know people with personal stories of housing and not everybody goes into housing, but there had to have been some sort of like trigger point. What made you both continue to want to talk about the issue or this human right of housing?
0: So I think for me, I got really plugged in when I don't remember the exact moment But I know that it was through Faith in Action and their community organizing that they were doing in the city of San Mateo, I want to say like 2014, 2015. So when I got plugged in, I, being a renter, and, and luckily, I had a stable rental situation with my family for many years at that point. But I also knew that my aunt, who rented a shared room right next door to me, she didn't have... She, she had to do that because because of the high cost of rent. And this was before and during the, like, before the worst part, I think, of our of our housing crisis, or actually during. It was when Faith in Action was finding families and teachers and all all kinds of folks in our community. It was, like, when it started hitting the middle class, really, that there was a teacher that got a $1,000 rent increase in the city of San Mateo, and... And so Faith in Action was organizing folks, primarily Latinx folks in the city of San Mateo to go to city council and ask for help and ask for policy change and support. And I think when I got plugged in the measure, which became Measure Q, there were just, I think they were in process of getting enough signatures and I collected signatures for it as well. But I just knew that it was an issue that was impacting people all over my community and it wasn't right. And so I remember going to city council meetings and while there were two really supportive council members who knew that something needed to be done, they were not the majority. And so the help didn't come. And so Measure Q was placed on the ballot and then I ended up working for Faith in Action and helping to run that ballot measure campaign which I'll, I guess I'll just stop there. I'll leave some room for Irving to share as well. But that's how it started for me.
1: I do want to comment on that. I actually had no idea. We So the three of us here, Irving and Noelia and I are all relatively good friends here in the Peninsula Bay Area. I didn't actually know that you worked for Faith in Action. I know you started with them. So that's a really interesting fun fact that I just learned about you today. It's great. Thank you. Irving, what made you start advocating for housing or made you continue to talk about
2: the issue? Yeah, I think it was when I kind of came back from from college, being away for a couple of years and as a first generation proving American that had this kind of message reiterated to me over and over again, that once you get a college degree, everything was going to be fine and you were going to have housing security and all of that, I came back home with college debt. And it was to the amount that was a lot. And also coming back at a time when the recession was we were just coming out of the recession. And so the challenges of finding even a job during that time was very challenging. And so kind of this kind of anxiety re, re-kicked again after after being a college graduate, knowing that I was once again on the verge, as well as my family being housing insecure again, really kind of shifted my gears about primarily focusing on the need for affordable housing and as well as homelessness.
1: You know, those are both really expressive stories. And I feel like it can relate to both of them personally, like in Noelia's case for the faith, for your work in Faith in Action, in n- not seeing enough action for your local city council for Finding a base of people to organize around, like I feel like I've had that own, my own experience in that as well. In relation to the story I actually just talked about earlier about my uncle receiving an eviction notice, I called each one of the city council members, I asked them to put a, like what was going around at the time in 2019 with a stopgap measure for rent stabilization before the state's rent stabilization went into effect. And I did all that work and I found a supportive council member and it got onto the city council agenda fairly fast, but the result was no action implemented. And I found that my family found more support in that through legal aid societies. And it kind of just highlighted the importance of representation, but I definitely relate to the story of like putting the effort and being at city council and not having the immediate result that is needed for the urgency that kind of surrounds the housing crisis and the housing shortage and Irving to your point as well coming out of college I mean that's a big reality for a lot of us it's it's a big reality for a lot of first second generation fresh out of college students and people who have been especially in our community who have been told like this is how you move up the economic ladder this is how you can help close the racial wealth gap and the racial wealth divide in our own communities. And the reality of which is, if the cost of living is so high, it just becomes harder to do so. So I really appreciate you both uh, sharing that story. Uh, I want to dive in a little bit more in both of your specific works and specific roles. Uh, Irving, I really want to start with you and your work at All Home. You guys had a pretty big uh, uh, legislative win with a particular bill. And it's one that I've known had been an issue in my prior work and working in affordable housing. There was an issue around classification for ELI, and I'm hoping you can discuss more about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so, as I mentioned before in the beginning, I work for an organization called All Home. And we're fairly new, but the idea of our mission is really to advance regional solutions that disrupt the cycles of poverty and homelessness redress the racial disparities, and then most importantly, try to create more economic mobility opportunities for people with extremely low income. And so we primarily focus around the nine-county Bay Area on those types of initiatives. And as Alex mentioned, one of the key things that we've been trying to kind of help elevate and create awareness when it comes to tackling these issues of like homelessness and and housing is supporting our extremely low-income population, which is a a population and and members of our community that hasn't been talked as much. We talk about low and we talk about very low income, but the extremely low income is kind of a, I guess, a conversation that is being talked about more than previous cycles. And so one of the bills that, as Alex mentioned, that we were able to, through our collective partners from around the Bay area region is thanks to assembly member Robert Rivas, who's co-author co-authored this bill, which was AB 2094. And so basically it was a general plan for an annual report that would include extremely low income housing. Now, before this bill um, was signed by the governor previously any report out uh, while local jurisdictions were able to have the information what, um, housing units they needed to build for ELI if they necessarily didn't need to report it out and so what this bill does and moving forward it's going to make sure for any future housing elements or report out so for like housing units that includes a category for extremely low income and so this is going to create more transparency more accountability for local jurisdictions that might have used that category of very low income as a way to not highlight the need to build extremely low income. Now there's going to be a complete category solely on extremely low income, which I think is going to really help local jurisdictions. It's going to help the the state in terms of identifying the need for extremely low income. But most importantly, it's going to create that awareness and that representation that is long overdue.
1: Uh, we love to hear it. Uh, <laughs> as I mentioned, I knew it was a uh, a big issue in the affordable housing space in my prior role. Uh, Noelia, I want to go into your role quite a bit in both your run for supervisor as as our YIMBY endorsed candidate for supervisor for San Mateo County District Two, and also as a role as a trustee for one of the largest school districts in the area. What has been like your professional role? in housing. We know that there's a lot of focus a lot of times on city councils, but we're seeing such an increase in the political discourse around education and school and the need for like staff and supportive housing. And I want to hear a little bit more from you what your experiences in that has been either technical plans or to be honest, even stories that you've heard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that teachers have been greatly impacted just like our most vulnerable families and neighbors. And that it's real when it starts hitting the middle class and and that includes teachers and all of the other essential workers in our community. In terms of my role on the school board, we have expressed great interest in looking at teacher housing and exploring opportunities in our school district. But I have to admit that it was on my list of items to move forward during in 2020. And when I was president of the board, and as we all know, we got thrown a curveball with the pandemic and the, it just, it, it hasn't moved forward as much as I would have liked. But I will say that I've been very supportive of teacher housing in our region and and have set the tone for our school district looking into teacher housing in the future. I will I will also add that, I've learned I've learned a lot from my mentor, who is Board Trustee Kalima Salahudin in a Jefferson Union High School District, and the amazing project that they were able to bring to fruition over there. Um, there's still much more to learn. And yeah, I think other than that, you had a second part to your question.
1: I think it was revolving the, your run for supervisor. Oh, that's
0: right, absolutely. Okay, so let me get into this piece of it. (laughs) I think, so recently my most popular tweet ever was kind of elevated because I had posted some of my perspectives on housing for our county or the housing priorities and um i had a council member tweet back to me that actual experience essentially trumps so-called lived experience and as the three of us have already expressed we have a wealth of lived experiences with housing and housing insecurity and actually who better to inform policy and to collaborate on effective solutions for homelessness and for housing insecurity than the folks who have experienced it, right? I, actually, I think it's actually, it's motivated me more to share my stories and we haven't even gotten to everything, right? Like my family was evicted during the pandemic and had to move out of the area and they drive here now every single day to go to work. And there are so many families just like that who are still a part of our community, who still work here, who still contribute. And their experiences matter, right? That there's value in hearing those stories. And I think, as a former sociology major, and that my, my, what I learned as a sociology major at San Francisco State will never leave me. And that is that when you really look at an issue you have to look at it from the lens of qualitative data and the lens of quantitative data and that you really need both to have an informed perspective and to really look at an issue deeply and so i actually think that it's super important that we lift up these stories so that we understand that you know we're, we're talking about policy but this is real people like real people are impacted every single day by the action or inaction of our policymakers. And um, yeah, probably my biggest priority in terms of housing is that we continue to work on building affordable housing and creating more, more housing in general, but also that we act when it comes to prevention, that we protect tenants, that we stop the cycle of, you know, housing people, and then there's just more people that are become unhoused, right? Like, you have to do it all. So I'll stop there. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening and for asking that question. Yeah, oh, that was, if, that was
2: if great. If I, oh, go if ahead. I could just add, Thanks, Alex. If I could just add, like, just the importance of like, the understanding of our lived experiences that earlier this year, like UCLA, the researchers produced like a report that Found that Latinos in like California were like about half as likely as whites to have applied for and received rent relief. And for a lot of folks that may have kind of read that study or like heard that that report, I mean, they're like calling into question, how is that possible? But from my own lived experience as well as other lived experience folks, we have family members who who are undocumented, friends and family and neighbors, and we know how hard it is and, and the trust and and the worriness of even applying for a basic application. We can simplify as much as we can, but the reality is it's it's something of a, a hard issue. And so those lived experiences are the importance of the actual experience. And, and that is what's needed, especially as we kind of navigate this post-pandemic of how we make sure that all of our Latinx and Latino communities get that affordable housing, get the assistance that they need to continue on to make sure that their well-being is intact.
1: Oh my goodness, both of those answers are so great. I could just dive into both of them and it leads perfectly into my next question, which really revolves around the unique challenges relating to our Latino and Latinx communities when it comes to housing. I kind of introed some of this in the beginning when we talked about overcrowding but the relationship between lived experience informing how we implement policy is so so important and that's the key crux of my next question in what are some of the unique challenges that we do experience we let's start on the documentation status as as an issue speaking from personal experience here again and this this entire conversation is going to be informative mostly personal experiences but in relation to what Irving just mentioned with rent relief with knowing your rights sometimes it's difficult in relation to how your documentation status is perceived we all have family members i have family members who are undocumented and a common story that i've sometimes had to tell people is look you can have even even post 2019 rent stabilization in california A lot of family members and people that I know in the Latinx community are less willing to be able to press their landlord or talk to a legal aid society or, as you just mentioned, Irving, apply for rent relief because of a worry about their documentation status. You can say that your building is on the borderline of being red tagged, there's a plumbing issue, there's mold, and you have your rights to be able to say some of this stuff. But if your landlord knows you're undocumented and can hover that over you, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place on whether or not you accept your existing living condition, try to find some time to move on if you're not overworking, or just take the risk and hope, hope for the best. And it's kind of a challenge. I have some other unique things I want to bring, but I want to see if either one of you have a response to that.
0: I have a, I think many of us have mixed status families. And that means many different things. It means that you don't necessarily qualify for the, first of all, there's like all of the affordable housing services are inundated by applicants and they're super long, but you can't even get on many lists if you do not have legal status in this country. And so that already takes a toll in terms of you're already vulnerable, you don't speak the language potentially, and and, and then you can't even qualify for a lot of the help that does exist. and And it leads to that overcrowding and it leads to being... In situations where where you have to make decisions based on harm reduction and not on, like, opportunity, right? You are likely to have a job that is a low-wage job. You don't know your rights. You don't know what protections you do have. And even if you do know them, I have heard many cases of folks that are undocumented being threatened by property owners by other renters even at times to call to call ICE to call immigration because of whatever whatever reason. And and remember that like when you are in spaces where there's overcrowding and when you're having to share housing, when people don't have the space that they need, there's going to be an increase of problems and friction just because of the fact that people don't have their space to go and and decompress to, right? Yeah, I'll I'll just stop, I'll stop there. And Irving, you can jump in, but I'm happy to add more after.
2: Yeah, I know, Noel, you touched on an important point about like language barrier, and that is something of a key component when it comes to getting the services and support that they need. Even for folks Latinx and Latino community members that are citizens, the language barrier is just another crucial step on that. And I think the important part about it is even like the misinformation and like the lack of information out there as well. And so while we are in this space as a way to kind of promote education and inform our our listeners about the importance of representation for affordable housing among the land ex Latino community members. A lot of our broader community members don't have access to even like a phone or access to like these types of programs and information. And so it's another kind of factor that kind of creates these challenges of why our communities and our groups are not getting the, the type of support that they need and, and falling behind compared to other like ethnic groups. One, one story that, which is, you know, I was in education during the pandemic and what got me back into public policy was the fact that I served as kind of a, a person that was connecting a lot of families to, to resources of like, whether it was like housing or, or, or applying for jobs through like human services agencies around the Bay area. This one story just struck with me, which was like a single, a single mom who called me up and, and, got COVID and as a result, she lost her job and, and she just couldn't find a place to live. And, and as much as I was trying to call to get the resources and services, the reality was like there was undercapacity. There was a lack of resources and, and that just like broke my heart because like how, how is a single mom gonna be able to take care of their kid and how is that kid going to be able to like focus on their education when they didn't have like a place to live and 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 she was a latina and i was talking to her in spanish and and so it's just all of these hurdles that our communities have to face and it's, it's a lot and for them to overcome all of those just to be able to kind of like apply for a basic program uh, like a section eight voucher or some other type of program that would take more time for them to finally receive. It's, it's these challenges that are real and, and currently our communities are facing. That's both so good.
1: And I think both of you touch on something that is like not well highlighted. And I think it's something that we sort of understand and in an aspect of housing, housing has a lot of numbers, has a lot of acronyms, has a lot of application status, wages, et cetera. But something kind of lost in the mix of that. And I feel like it's something that our community tends to notice. And we're even bringing it up now is there's a lack of a conversation around what affordability like does to one's mental health and time and how we don't have housing as a value or secure housing as a value of time, time to decompress, time to do your homework, time to do Things that are not trying to address your basic needs, and when you have limited amount of time, it doesn't really allow you to address those other necessities or those other parts of your life or improve them. Especially if you're consistently worrying about not just your orientation status, but your housing status as well. There's so much we could pull in from the discussion here. <laughs> I think one of the other things, and uh, that we could probably mention specifically because we are coming out of this pandemic world. The pandemic is sort of still going on but we are approaching in I guess an endemic phase I I don't actually know what it's called but a post-COVID world is that what we're seeing in the in one of the main things for the housing article that I mentioned in LA was overcrowding even well before COVID started was a kind of this factory for increasing you know, sickness among amongst our community. And I remember during the 2020 in San Mateo County here specifically, there was a lot of misreporting when it came to COVID numbers for particular areas of our county that were majority Latino or Latinx. And it, it, it just kind of struck me in that the overcrowding issue that has historically been part of our community also had such a huge impact in what the COVID rates were. It also had to do with a lot of us, a lot of our community also working these essential worker jobs uh, to afford the wages that were the amount of time in person work to be able to just afford even insecure levels of housing. And actually, All Home actually had a report on this. All Home actually had a report on, uh, I believe it was uh, extremely low income housing and the relationship between that and wages. And Irving, maybe you can uh, inform me a bit more on this particular uh, report.
2: Yeah, so the UC um, Turner Center um, out in Berkeley produced a a report late last year, really highlighting kind of like the extremely low-income kind of story, highlighting how ELI, folks that were renters. And this is the population that is at most of, of of, becoming homeless or experiencing homelessness. You know, this is the 30% area medium income. And each counties vary when it comes to their 30% area me- medium income and below. But before the 2022 point in time count, which is a biannual count that local jurisdictions need to do. And basically, it's like counting the number of folks uh, who are experiencing homelessness. Before that 2022 point-in-time count, there was information out there that for the Bay Area, there was almost close to more than like a million folks who were on that kind of category, extremely low income. And so UC Turner Center produced this report as a way to emphasize that when we're tackling this issue of homelessness, we need to disrupt this cycle. Alameda County has some information for every person that they shelter in, two or more, two or three more folks are on the street. And so part of that is really kind of identify how can we set up prevention. Part of that prevention is getting folks with that are able to have permanent type of housing. And so with with this kind of report that was come out, kind of really showed the jurisdictions about like each of their ELI income, showed about even home ownership too among ELI versus ELI renters and showed obviously for ELI folks that had home ownership, right? Their stability were more stable compared to ELI renters that obviously were very impacted, especially during the pandemic. And obviously in our point in time counts, we have seen a rise of, of, Latinx and Latinos experiencing homelessness throughout the Nine County Bay Area and even across the state as well. I mean, Cal Matters had done a report on the rise of Latinos, Latinx experiencing homelessness. And so part of it, as Alex mentioned, is it's a workforce that when the pandemic hit, a lot of our community members suffered from it, lost their jobs, health issues that stopped them from continuing working and so forth. And our communities are the ones that had faced a lot from the pandemic, not just from getting the COVID-19, but also just the other factors that came into economic mobility, housing security, and and all of the rest of the things that I think to this day, a lot of families are still way behind and, and just try and play catch up as a result of the impacts of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty big tie at the end there. I remember I had a neighbor of mine actually recently who after, I think it was several months of applying for the state's rent relief, California state rent relief finally got it. And I couldn't help but but it really impact, it really made a good impact for his life. It helped his situation, but I couldn't help but think in that particular moment and some, in a situation where somebody was really dependent on it, how that time and waiting for that rent relief could have been could have made the difference in somebody else's life who really needed kind of needed it kind of immediately noelia i have another question for you so as as we move forward with your election days around the corner (laughs) we're sure is yeah (laughs) we're, we're out there we're hitting the pavement we're trying to get the word out about your campaign and i want to ask you what helps you stay optimistic is there anything about your campaign around housing that you would like to mention is there a particular the county has such a huge say and not a lot of people know this on the budgeting for housing in San Mateo County what keeps you optimistic what are you looking forward to and do you have any stories from the campaign trail i that was kind of three questions in one but i want to give <laughs> you <laughs> i want to give you an opportunity to say what you want
0: yeah absolutely so I'll add, I mentioned earlier that I really want to focus, not just focus on it. Everything, every piece of it is important, right? But like the missing piece that I feel like our county needs to do, needs to show a little more urgency around is, is the prevention piece. And what do I mean by that? I think that we need a county registry for like like an accountability system so that we have the information that we need. I can't tell you the amount of times that I heard in city council meetings that we just don't have the data. We don't know if it's that much of a crisis. We don't know if it's happening that much. And it always just like, it always, it like infuriated me because I was like, do you not hear all of these people telling you their stories? Right. But like, there's no place for, Actually, just today, a friend of mine who I met during Measure Q many years ago came to pick up a lawn sign for me, and she told me about an issue that she had with getting her deposit back from, I won't name the company, but getting her deposit back from an apartment that she rented for several years, and it was a good amount of money, right? And She tried to go to the county for, I think it was like mediation or I can't, I don't know exactly where she went. Right. But she did go to the county and try to get help. And she told me that from the very first couple of sentences from the, the person that was staffing that, that place that like, it was clear to her that there was a resistance to believe that. It was as she said it was, right? That what she was, and I don't, I don't want to like go into like the specifics of her story, but that really it concerned me because I come from a background of like faith in action, where we hear people's stories, we get them connected to oh my goodness oh to legal aid, we get them connected to what? Why can I remember the name of this place in East Palo Alto that's amazing with Measure Q? Pluspa. Yes, class I I I, re- I was like I can I was thinking of the acronym, but I was like, what does the acronym stand for? There's too many acronyms, y'all. They're everywhere, <laughs>
1: especially in housing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and and it's like there is no like, folks. If if a if a person in a vulnerable situation steps into a space where they are expecting and hoping to get help, and they don't feel supported. Then something's wrong, <laughs> you know like like we we have to do better than that, and so my idea around this rental registry is that there's there's data and information collected, it's funded by a rental permit, right right by unit, and it's not like a huge crazy amount of money, right all of that is t b d this is just an idea, right it's a policy idea, but that money that but that 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 money goes into creating the data system, but also supporting folks that are, that are having issues with their housing and that do not have time to go and file a lawsuit or like hire a lawyer. Like, like every person that I know that is making it out here and renting for thousands of dollars, many times, like a really small space, they're working more than one job to be able to pay to live there. And they don't have the time or the capacity to go and, and seek legal representation for recourse. Like it's just not realistic. And so what that means is that you have vulnerable tenants kind of just like surviving through bad situations because they don't have the energy or the resources or the time to fight for their rights and to and to get the help that they need and deserve. So yeah, that that's a part of it. And that was just one of your questions. You asked me like three. So please remind me. No, no, (laughs) that was great. I can't think of a better example of tying.
1: We talked a lot about stories and personal experience. That was a really good one in relation to tying personal experience to the necessity of a Uh, of a policy that is lacking. I mean, the rental registry is something that's really going on in the state discourse. I can't tell you how many times I've also heard that, how many times I've gone personally to city council, whether it's something involving tenants, zoning, housing shortage, inclusionary housing, it doesn't matter the housing issue, and how much of it could have been supplemented by the need for a rental registry. I, I mean, I just heard that. I've heard that a ton of times. It's really something that we could use in our it would it would not just assist our community it would it would just inform better housing policy to be honest
0: absolutely absolutely and 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 where does that come from it comes from like hearing people's lived experience right and tying it back to like you need the the qualitative data and the quantitative data and if you don't have the data then you need to create it you need to create a system that captures it right like it's not enough to say, oh, we don't, we don't really know. And I've seen this in the education world where we don't always have data for everything that we need. And so then what we we need to slow down and take a moment and say, this is a missing piece of the puzzle that we need to better understand if we're going to get to an effective solution. And so it's not rocket science. Like, we don't have the data. We need to make sure that we we figure out a way to get it.
1: <laughs> we should uh somebody should make a slogan uh, uh data for equity or equity for data or something like that it seems like it would fit perfect. yeah this is great i wish we could keep going for a while let's go to irving because i want to give to the last say in this particular discussion irving in your work at all home what is your big takeaway what is your to-do action item from your personal or work experiences thus far in helping to solve the housing shortage or housing in relation to uh, the Latino and Latinx community?
2: Yeah, I think for, for, for our organization and, and me specifically as someone that has, has faced these types of challenges, is continue creating this awareness and education for, for a lot of our decision makers and policymakers around the nine County Bay Area. I think it's important that when we have these types of initiatives and thinking about what's the best way to support our, our families having a roof under over their head is so instrumental towards the 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 drivers of of success for for our communities and so forth and you know, I'm a living example of that and I'm always sharing that with every policymaker that I talk to that if I wasn't too long out of out of housing. I don't know where I would be, my family and I, but thankfully enough, through these housing insecurities, I was able to get quality education, been able to be able to financially support my family. But we need to do that for everyone. And I think specifically for our Latinx and our Latino community members who have been severely impacted by the pandemic, we need to make sure that we're providing that affordable housing, the need to make sure that it's equipped with the resources, um, rental assistance, whatever type of need that they need, so that way they can continue thriving on our communities because they are just as much of an asset than any of our other groups that are living here in our region. You're here. <laughs>
1: Noelia, as Yimby Actions endorsed candidate for San Mateo County's District Two Supervisor, what can our listeners in our infill
0: podcast do to support you? Thank you. That's a great question. Well, it's simple. Please go to my website. There's many call to actions button call to action buttons. There we. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. I'm like struggling with this one because. Ask any candidate in the last two weeks of their campaign what they need, and the answer will be everything. (laughs) (laughs) We are phone banking three times a week, door knocking every weekend, and folks can do phone banking from their home anytime. Please go to the website, sign up. If you are able, please make a donation. Anything helps. I was kind of looking at some of the questions that I I was reviewing in order to prep, and there's something else that I want to add one of the one of them was like what do you say to people who are nervous about adding more housing to their neighborhoods and i because of my candidacy and this campaign i've been in this unique position where like i'm really like bringing people together and and creating a different kind of conversation around housing and so to that point tell your story tell your story to someone that you uh, know has a different perspective about housing build a relationship with them. Talk to each other. I I think that's something that I have been uh, doing as as I become as I as I choose to share my story and be vulnerable. I feel like it brings people in, and also like we are all part of this community, right? And we need to find solutions together. And it can be really hard to do that when people are defensive. But I have found that when you are vulnerable and you share your, your experience people soften up a little bit and then you can talk about how do you move forward and how do you find that middle ground so i wanted to just end on that note and unapologetically yes in my backyard and i want these conversations to be had because we cannot we need people to come together so we can reach the most effective policy decisions and solutions for our community that was great. Oh, sharing
1: stories to get people to say yes in my backyard. This is great. Thanks, everybody, so much. for. Thank you, Noelia and Irving, for joining us. We're really excited about all the pro housing work that you've both done thus far and we will do continually in the future. And hopefully, <laughs> we will have a new Latina County supervisor in San Mateo County. Wouldn't that be great? That's now, right. Actually, first ever. Historic gonna make, first ever. We're going to make it a reality. That's, a, that's what we're going to do. Thank you. A note for everyone listening uh, we just launched a new Yimby Action chapter. It's called Yimby Latinx, which focuses on housing issues in our community, highlighting the ongoing work of Latinx housing champions, like our two speakers today. If you are already a Yimby Action member, you can check out the Slack channel that we have. It's ID Latinx. And you could also check out our Twitter handle, uh, Yimby Latinx. And we're looking forward to growing more in the future sharing more stories of our uh, community leaders and people doing the work and highlighting the important uh, issues that really face uh, our community. I'm going to do one more pitch for membership. If you're not already a member of Yimby Action, we fight for abundant, affordable, and sustainable housing to create equitable communities for people across the United States. We're a national organization, and our members are essential for doing the work. So you can join us by going to yimbyaction.org slash join. That's it y'all. Thanks for listening. Take
0: care y'all. Good night. Buenas noches.